Welcome to Tracks to Success, brought to you by Presentation Partners. This is the podcast that brings you inspiring people and their inspiring stories. How did they find their way to the top and how can their path help you do the same? Here's your host, network broadcaster, executive and entrepreneur, Craig Cam. Right now on this edition of Tracks to Success, meet a man I know well. And if you love golf, a man I know you know. He's gone from top young talent to prominent college star to professional tour player to tour winner. And then he made a choice. A professional pivot, not divot, that pulled his career in a completely different direction taking him off the course and putting him front and center on your television screen. In a short time, he became one of the game's most recognizable faces and strongest, most influential voices. Fans of the game may love him, may not really like him, but they've definitely heard of him, and they always seem to hear him. But how much do they really know about him? He's a father, a husband, a mentor, an author, and one of sports top analysts. Not a big shot, a big tournament, or a big story goes by without an ear waiting for his take. But know this, he's dedicated to his craft, determined to make a positive impact, and driven to make his next point his best point. His name is Brandel Chambly. His inspiring story And this edition of Tracks to Success starts now. Well, my oh my, isn't this a thrill? (laughs) I am am really excited about this, Brandel. I haven't interviewed one person completely dedicated and tied to golf yet for Tracks to Success. And you, my friend, are it. Tag, how you doing? (laughs) I'm great. First of all, I don't recognize you without a big bowl of chips and salsa in front of you. So, you know, it's, it's weird that you and I are going to spend an hour talking when we're not on TV and we don't have Mexican food in front of us. But uh, but I'm great. I, uh, I couldn't be better. I'm keeping busy. You know, golf's been pretty darn active through uh, through COVID, fortunately, um, as we've all sort of dealt with this uh, traumatic experience. But otherwise, uh, pretty good. Knock on wood. Well, I could have put some chips and salsa here, but I, I just didn't have the time. I wanted to get right into this, and, and I want to go hard and heavy on you and, and put you in real uncomfortable positions. So here we go. As your friend and former colleague, I can say this, uh, and I mean this. Your success story to me is inspiring. Now, some people might say it's irritating, okay? I say it's inspiring. And I want to start with this. The New York Times has has said two things about you, Brandel Chambly. Number one, they labeled you the Golf Channel's resident scholar and critic. Is that a label you're comfortable with? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, you know, you know that, that label, you know, it may, it may work for them, trying to, you know, put me in a corner, I suppose. But, uh, you know, my job as an analyst is to, and I've said this many, many times, by the time I come on the air, almost everything that could have been said about the golf, the game and golf um, has been said. So I have to work really hard to come up with something that the audience that's tuning in has, has never heard or hopefully hasn't heard and say it in a way that is 
meaningful or impactful or memorable. So I, I work really hard to bring something new to our audience yeah. and say it in a way that they remember. Um, that takes me down a lot of different rabbit holes. And I, I'm of the belief that, that everything can be great. You know, to, to truly qualify something as great, there has to be every iteration going all the way down to that which struggles. And so I, I try to be pretty accurate or as accurate as I can be with the information that I have. And people want to call that critic or critical. To me, I'm just an analyst. Mm -hmm. uh, and everything can be great if you're an analyst. If something, if everything is great, when something that comes along truly is great, you have no credibility. Um, you know, platitudes, perlatives, um, those are like the fat. And I try to stay away from the fat and get right to the meat. And that's, that's hard. It takes a no. long time. It takes a lot of work. Yeah, you're so, right about uh, that. You're right about that. I, I've lived a few of those rabbit holes with you. Uh, the New York Times also said that you have truly found your niche. Do you believe that to be true in what you're doing? Well, I, yeah, I think so. You know, I'm, <laughs> I enjoyed my career playing golf, certainly. You know, 15 years or roughly 15 years playing the tour and about 20 years playing professional golf. And I certainly enjoyed it. And I did it from the time I was 13, played golf, until roughly 2004. So that's a big chunk of my life. But the reason I went into TV wasn't because I was playing bad or I was injured. It was for two reasons. One, it was to be home more and spend time with my family or more time with my family and friends. And then beyond that, it was because I didn't want to just do one thing uh, for my entire life. I wanted to try my hand at something else. Mm. And I have always been inquisitive and I've always um, enjoyed the written word and the spoken word. And when you put those together with my knowledge of golf, um, I think that, yes, I've, I've, uh, I've found a place that I'm quite comfortable yeah. with. Um, and I'm, I'm probably, you know, if, if we're being truly objective, I'm, I'm probably better at this job than I was at playing professional golf. I would, uh, I would say you're definitely very good at your job, and I know that to be true. Um, we're going to go through your success story, and I'm going to take you all the way back because I do want to hear about childhood and all. But I'm going to ask you a straight-up question. Uh, you just alluded to it. You had years of consistency. You were a very good player. You did win a PGA Tour event. You did ultimately uh, make a pivot, lose your card, uh, full-time playing privileges. Was that ultimately, Brandel, based on what you just said, the best thing that could have happened to you, given your newfound success in your mind? I don't know that it's the best thing that could have happened to me. I, I'd like to think I just made the best out of a situation that perhaps wasn't ideal. Um, you know, the reason I wanted to spend more time with my family and be home more was because you know, we had a tragedy in the family. And, you know, I, I lost a child and um, in the process of grieving, you know, my marriage became unraveled and, uh, you know, these were, they were tough times and I needed to be home more and I was on the road and, you know, I was looking out the window, you know, finished around a round of golf and I, I didn't 
yearn to go to the range and practice, which you have to do. And I, I just no longer felt that fire. And I wanted to be home. I wanted to be somewhere else. So, I, you know, this new trajectory, and none of us can make these definitive plans. You just try to make the best out of it. And for me, that, you know, I mean, that meant diving in, trying to learn the art of being on TV and, and, and get comfortable with it. But I've always enjoyed putting myself in situations that, that scare the hell out of me. You know, uh, if, if I'm nervous to do something, then it makes, you know, and that's a good sign. You know, it was a new avenue in life. Didn't know anything about it. Wasn't particularly good at it initially. Um, but I just worked hard at it. So I tried to make the best out of this new path that I was on. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, the same things that made me successful in golf um, have proven to be useful in my new endeavor. And those are, you know, they're nothing new. They're, they're just hard work. You know, I, um, you know, I, I love to work, you know, I love to get up early in the morning and, and, and work till late in the evening. I don't need a whole lot of sleep. <laughs> and I, I enjoy reading and studying and then thinking about what I'm going to do and then having a good attitude. You know, a good attitude is, is paramount, um, you know, and, and try to positively affect everybody around me. That's the goal. You, know, mm -hmm. you, you, you fall short of that, of course, at times, but, but the goal is to, um, you know, have a good attitude so that you affect in a positive way, everybody that comes into contact with you. Brandel, I was there uh, when you came to the Golf Channel, and uh, you just took me down the path I was going to get to a little bit later, but I'm going to go to it right now. Losing a tour card um, or a playing career full-time, however you want to say it, is nothing, nothing compared to losing a child or losing a marriage or the things that you went through. And when you came to the Golf Channel, um, did you feel that life had unraveled? Did you immerse yourself into something that deep because of what you were going through? I mean, were you in a situation where you felt lost to some degree? Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody gets through life unscathed, you know, uh, life can be troubling, you know, um, uh, and, and, and you try to bear that burden, you know? Um, I mean, I, I think there is, you don't want to be the, the, you know, babbling person in the corner who can't solve problems. And so, you know, life comes at you in a different way than you anticipated and you pivot and you try to make the best out of it and try to um, try to be the person that people can depend upon. And, you know, tragedy falls on a great number of people, you know, and it's, and, you know, you, you, you deal with it, you know, you try to deal with it as best you can, you know, family and friends matter, perspective matters, um, attitude matters, reading widely matters to get other people's perspective. Um, and, and, you know, you, you grieve and that, you know, I, I'll never get over the loss of, of Braden. His name was Braden. Um, it hurts, but, uh, but you got to go on and make the best out of what uh, what life has dealt you. Yeah. And when I got to Golf Channel, sure, yeah, it was a new world for me. I was a new endeavor, something I'd never done before. Uh, I, I didn't feel like I was, you know, I didn't know 
people always say, you know, you just try to be yourself, but you know, it, it is very easy when you first get into the TV world. And I think this is true in other areas of life as well, where you, you see other people do things and you emulate them and you kind of lose and it's, it's good to emulate. Sure. But you want to find your own voice. And it took me a while to figure out who I was in TV and, and what I might be able to add to, um, the world of golf on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I was finding my way, so to speak, carving out new ground. And it was, it was uncomfortable. Um, and, uh, yeah, I had sort of hit rock bottom. Um, and, uh, you know, I did the best I could to uh, pick myself up and rebuild and, and, uh, and move on. You found a voice for sure. Pretty quickly. Um, you became, one of the voices in the game very quickly as well. I want to take you all the way back. We'll get back to, you know, communication and what you do on Golf Channel and some of the memories that we lived in just a bit. I want to go back to to you being, you know, born, not that you would remember that day, uh, but in St. Louis and in the Midwest and the type of kid that you were uh, growing up. Were you the kid that was into all sports, Brandel? Were you the kid that, that – was a, a yapper and had something to say, a big reader down at the library, uh, tons of friends. Um, what, what would they have said about Brandel Chambly at that age, you know, eight, 10 years old? Well, I grew up in a big family um, and a happy family and a, an engaging family. You know, my dad was and still is, um, you know, an, a very engaging, wonderfully funny, good humored man. And my mom is, is a sweetheart and a solid um, sounding board for everybody in the house. But yes, I mean, we grew up in a very active house. I played uh, every single sport, you know, besides hockey, because, well, it, we moved to Texas when I was pretty young and, you know, there, there was nobody playing hockey then. But other than that, I, I played every sport. You know, I wanted to be, I wanted to run track, um, in, in the Olympics. Right. And, you know, by the time I was 13, kids were huge and, and, and I, you know, I won lots of races and jumped pretty far and pretty high, but there were kids in regionals who were faster and higher, um, able to jump higher. Then I went into horses and I rode competitively for a long time, did a lot of fun, crazy things on those. When I was 11, actually, I rode my horse from Irving or Dallas, Texas to Lake Texoma. That's a hundred miles. I, I, I wouldn't let my kids ride their bike down the street uh, when they were 11 without me watching them. Yeah. But it was a different time. You know, my mom and dad would drive out in the evenings, find where we had, and my older brother and I had set up camp. We were active. We were out all day long, riding horses, playing football, throwing baseball, jumping bikes, you know, just, we were very active. Um, and, uh, you know, my dad supported us, you know, in, in, in every conceivable way. And my mom made sure that we got there and got back and had, you know, great meals on the table and did our homework and went to bed. Good, good, very good family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but when, once I found golf, because I had taken a friend of mine to go ride horses, and unbeknownst to me, he was one of, if not the top ranked junior player in the country. Um, and he said, you know, you got to come out and play golf. I went out and played golf. I came home. I told my dad, I think this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And he was like, okay, but if that's the case, we've got to sell the horses. You can't do both. So 
he sold the horses. I went into golf and, uh, and that was it. You know? Wow. Uh, I found my calling when I was, you know, what I wanted to do in my life really when I was, you know, right around 13 years of age. Who was your biggest influencer? Was it your dad? Was it your mom? Was it somebody else that uh, you remember yeah, I mean, and leaned my on? Dad, my, dad, my dad had a real can-do spirit. Um, you know, there was nothing that uh, that was a hurdle for him. You know, I can remember my dad wanted to take me to go play, or I wanted to go play in this tournament called the Texas-Oklahoma uh, Junior. It was a very big tournament, the T.O. And it was played in uh, Wichita Falls, Texas. And I don't know what that is. That's 150 miles away, maybe from Dallas. And this was during the energy crisis and the oil shortages and the gasoline lines. And, and um, you know, you had to go on certain days. And I remember, you know, it was time to leave. And he had a quarter of a tank of gas in the car. And it wasn't his day to get gas. And he was like, load up. We're going. And I was like, well. And my mom, you know, she's been a worry ward. And she's like. Well, you don't have enough gas to get there. My dad's like, don't worry about, I'll find gas. We'll be good. Don't, we'll, I promise you someone's going to sell gas to me from here to there. And off we went. And sure enough, he found some farmer who sold him some gas and we got to the TO and I played in the Texas Oklahoma. I never forgot that. You know, it didn't matter if there was something wrong with the car or the house. The dad was like, yeah, I'll get it. I'll do it. And he would do it perfect. You know, he was mm. so patient. Very patient man. Uh, great attention to detail. Writing, drawing, talking. And mom was equally patient, but she was a writer and an artist, you know, always writing books, uh, letters, poetry, always painting, and, you know, always taking care of the kids. So I had lots of great influences, you know, lots. Did you sit glued to the masters at that age, taking notes or thinking about it? If golf was going to be your calling, were you, were you that into it then, you know, in your lead up to going to Texas and playing golf there? <laughs> I was the, you know, the first tournament I can remember watching was the 75 masters. I'd have been 12 then. So my dad had taken me out to play golf a time or two somewhere in there, but it was, the 76, 12, 13, uh, I turned 13 after the 75 Masters, but 76 U.S. Open when Jerry Pate hit the five iron out of the right rough. Uh, I think he beat John Mahaffey by a shot. But anyway, um, I would go out in the backyard and try to imitate Jerry Pate's golf swing. So by 76, yeah, I was all in and watching every golf tournament. Um, you know, I, I'd get up and be out of the golf course before the sun came up and, you know, come home in the afternoon, watch the golf tournaments, but then go out in the yard, hit golf balls over the house and down the street, broke a lot of windows, and, you know, um, <laughs> stuff like that. You could run fast if you broke the windows. I'm sure you were pretty good. Um, you picked Texas. Uh, was it because of their speech communication program? I know that was your major. Um, <laughs> you could have probably gone anywhere. Why did you pick the Longhorns? How did they hook you? Well, I was watching the Texas-Texas A&M football game 1977 Thanksgiving, and Earl Campbell had a banner day. And Earl Campbell was just, you know, running up one end and down the other end of the football field. He'd get into the end zone and just drop the football and walk back. 
no histrionics, no wild celebrations. And I just thought he was the classiest individual athlete I'd ever seen. And, and I just, you know, I, I, I thought that was synonymous with the university of Texas. And at the time, of course, Tom Landry was the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys and they had such a great team, you know, with Stallback and Tony Dorsett and Robert Newhouse and Drew Pearson and Ed Tuttle Jones. They were, but they were, and I thought university of Texas reminded me a lot of, of the way the Dallas Cowboys handled themselves. You know, this was me watching football and imagining, mm -hmm. um, you know, UT instilling the values and the integrity um, into their athletes. And Earl Campbell was an extension of that. So from that point on, and of course, Ben Crenshaw, you know, was such a hero in, in, in Texas. Um, you know, so I really wanted to go to the University of Texas. Uh, now, UT is not like almost every other school, certainly wasn't at that time. Every other school would have 12, 15, the University of Houston at the time would have had 30 guys on the golf team. UT had eight, you know, seven or eight, really, you know, five played and they'd mm -hmm. have a couple more. So making that team and there would only be one spot really, or two spots open a year. And they would always go to the, the highest ranked junior golfer in the country. And there was a fellow by the name of Tommy Moore, who was, I think, the best junior in the country uh, when I was a senior in high school. Tommy decided to go to Oklahoma State. Now, that opened up another spot. And the UT coach came out to watch me play in the Texas State Junior. And he drove out to this par three that was 210 yards, wind blowing left to right, water in the front. <laughs> Parked behind the tee. I hit my tee ball in the water. I hit the next ball in the water. I hit the next ball in the water. And I made a nine. And I thought, man, I guess I'm not going to UT. And I, you know, the coach stuck around for a couple more holes. And then he left. And then out of the blue, a few months later, I get a call to come down to UT on a, on a visit. And I, mind you, I was looking at a lot of other schools and there was interest elsewhere, but I really just wanted to go to UT. So I go down there and I go out on all these trips and I go back and I'm in the coach's office. And I said, you know, coach Hannon, his name was George Hannon. He's a legend. I said, you know, I honestly, I, I was really surprised to get your call. I didn't think that you would want anything to do with me. You drove out <laughs> and I made a nine and he goes, yeah, he, he had a real funny affectation when he talked, he said, yeah, shambles. He never called me anything but shambles. Yes. Yeah, shambles. You did make a nine. He goes, but you know, you birdied those next two holes. And that told me more than that nine told me. And I'd, I, I don't even remember birdieing the next two holes. Hmm. I just was devastated by the nine and thinking, man, that's it. My shot at going to UT is over. But he said, you know, those birdies, they told me a lot. And, you know, he offered me the scholarship and I, I went to UT and, and you know, it was history. One of, the, one of the highlights of my life is going to the University of Texas. It was a, a phenomenal experience. We had the number one team in the nation. We won a great many tournaments. I made first team All-American. Um, I had great teammates, friendships I still had. I graduated um, and uh, I made a lot of uh, enduring uh, friendships and have phenomenal memories from that place. 
Hey everybody, I really want to tell you about Ahead, one of our new partners this season and now the official headwear provider of Tracks to Success. Creativity, a sharp look, dozens of styles to choose from. Ahead's been supplying the most prestigious events and outfitting the world's top golfers for 25 years, and it's perfect for you as well. So if you're looking to dress for success, make sure you think Ahead. Here's your chance to save big. Visit aheadusashop.com now and use the code TTSPOD. That's TTSPOD and receive 20% off your purchase. Ahead, the finest in headwear, the official headwear of the Tracks to Success podcast and available at aheadusashop.com. There are a lot of athlete scholars and there's a lot of scholar athletes. You're one of the smartest guys I've ever worked with in television because of the effort that you put into everything that comes out of your mouth. Perhaps that's speech communication major that you were. Um, Talk to me about the PGA Tour, Brandel. Um, A lot of people listening to this or watching this don't know um, our history or that much maybe about golf. Um, What's tougher, getting to the tour or staying relevant on it? in your mind? Um, well, getting to the tour, I would argue is easier because you're not competing against the best players in the world. The best players in the world are already on the PGA tour. So you're competing against players who are either trying to make it or who have lost their games and have slid down into an area where they're trying to, at that point, there was a qualifying process. Now then, you qualify to get onto a essentially minor leagues, and then you earn your spot on the PGA Tour through the minor leagues. It's known as the Corn Ferry Tour now. It was mm-hmm. the Ben Hogan Tour then. But when I first was trying to get on the tour, there was a three-step process. You had to go through a local qualifying where there'd be, you know, probably fifty different places within the country where there was a local qualifying. And there would be two, 300 people at that local qualifying and they'd take 10% of the field, 20, 30 players, and they'd move to a regional. And again, there'd be another 25 regionals and there'd be two, 300 people there and they might just take 10 people. And then you'd move to the final and the final would have 300 people and they would take 50. So there might start out with seven, eight, 9,000 people in the qualifying process and you end up and you're one of 50. So that's how you qualified for the tour. I qualified for the tour um, a couple of years after I got out of college. I missed a couple of times, played many tour events wherever I could just find any event that was offering money. <laughs> you pay the green fees or entry fees were huge, but uh, you know, I was doing very well in those events and making, you know, for a kid out of college, I was making good money playing yeah. mini tours. Yeah. But I qualified for the tour in uh, 1987, end of 87. So I was a rookie in 1988. And then once you get onto the PGA Tour, you have to play well enough to maintain a position in the top 125 on the money list. Now it's FedEx Cup, but then it was money list. So you're competing against the best players in the world. To stay out there, you have to be extraordinary. You know, I mean, look, I wasn't an extraordinary tour player. I was a good tour player, but you have to be an extraordinary golfer just in general. Mm-hmm. And you have to be mentally tough and you have to persevere and be able to deal with adversity and all the things that are applicable to every other avenue of life. 
you know, um, the tour is not unlike regular life. Um, and if you play well, it's a fabulous life. If you struggle, it's miserable. You're on the road, you're away from family and friends and you're staying in hotels and eating at restaurants. And if you're not playing well, it's almost as if you have some virus that nobody <laughs> wants to catch, you know, they, they, nobody will, they don't say it, it's unspoken, but I promise you there are people playing the tour right now who are struggling. And when they walk into the locker room, nobody knows what to say to them. Nobody wants to be around them. Really. They don't want to talk to them. They, you know, cause it's, it's this vibe that you just, your tour players are um, notoriously superstitious. And, um, but if you're playing well, you know, everybody wants to be your buddy. Everybody wants to be your friend. Everybody wants to be around you and, and participate in that party. So it's a, um, it's a weird world a bit. And it's a selfish world if you got to be good at it. So there was a part of me that really enjoyed the tour, but after a while I thought, you know, um, it's a very selfish endeavor. Golf. Yeah, yeah, it is. I hear that from a lot of guys. Now you, you had, you had success out there. You kept your card for a great number of years. I mentioned that already. You did win on the tour in Vancouver. You had a couple of uh, close calls and playoffs, one before and one after. When you won that tournament in short, Brando, was that more uh, career-changing, career-defining for you, or was it more life-changing, life-defining, altering for you? There's a difference. Yeah. It came late in my life. You know, I won in 98, so I would have been – 36 years old. So I was already physiologically, I would say on the uh, sort of the down slope of my career. Um, it was more than anything, sweet validation of all the, uh, the work and hard, hard days and nights that I put into my golf game. Uh, you know, it, it, it didn't change my life in any way, really, other than the fact that I got to play in you know, a few more events that I wouldn't have gotten to play in, but, you know, um, it didn't really change my life materially. Uh, it was, it was certainly not then. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, you know, I would say that that one victory, believe it or not, and this is the way things work is, you know, doubtful as if, if I would have been able to ascend to a level in television without a victory, you know, to be able to set up there as a former tour winner and they, and they need to have these titles to be able to refer if, you know, people refer to David Duvall as a former number one player in the world, you know, and if you've won on tour, you're a former winner on the PGA tour. If I had never won, you know, I don't know, maybe I would have been a TV. I don't know. Yeah. In terms of you get lifelong membership on the PGA tour and a few other perks, but, um, you know, it meant more to me probably later in my life than it did at the moment. And I'm sure it means more now. And you talked about the voice, finding your voice. Um, I talk about that a lot now, more so than ever for people to find their voice, to have a say, so to say something that matters. So many people talk, very few have something to say. Very few have something worth paying attention to. It's not that easy. As you were finding your voice and, and we were doing shows together, how quickly, Brandel, did you figure out, we've never talked about this, that people do hang on your 
more so than mine or others, right, as an analyst, they hang on your every word and they associate everything with you in a different way than other people. Was that difficult? Well, I'd say it took a bit. It took a while. Uh, you know, when you first get into TV, you know, we ask people in the business, you know, what do you like? What do you don't like? And they're like, well, don't don't sit like this or don't <laughs> don't do that or don't wear that tie or don't look like this. Look at the camera. Don't say this and don't say that. And you're just you're filled with all these ideas and thoughts that although they were well intentioned, um, you know, when you find your voice, you can sit like that. And you can wear this tie and you can say all the things they told you not to say. And the same person that gave you all of those sort of admonishments will go great job mm -hmm. because the difference of having your voice and not having your voice is in the way you say things. And, you know, I think you know, TV is not unlike an x-ray and it, it, it reveals your comfort level. People can tell when you're comfortable comfortable and uncomfortable with what you're saying but to have a voice you have to at least in my view um, you have to say something that is different than everybody else and so to do that you need to read more broadly than everybody else if you're just reading golf you're going to say everything like everybody else you're going to sound like everybody else so I've always tried to read as broadly outside of golf, you know, anything, literature, poetry, science, fiction, um, you know, politics, um, and look for analogies, metaphors um, that might be relevant and might help make your point in a better way. Um, comic strips, uh, archetypal stories you know I, I you know made the analogy once of tiger woods after his scandal to superman and the the analogy was that you know when superman was first envisioned and drawn he had no weaknesses and he could change orbits and jump tall buildings and solve every problem and while it was mildly, moderately successful, it wasn't until the authors of Superman came up with the idea of kryptonite that he became monstrously popular. Hmm. The idea that uh, a superhero could have a weakness was more relatable to people and intriguing and and. So, you know, Tiger, while he spent most of his career doing things that none of us could fathom or imagine, post-scandal, dealing with all of the existential issues that he was dealing with, was relatable. And so, in a different way, he was more popular or more intriguing after uh, the scandal. And so, you know, you look for analogies and different ways to bring your point to a, to some clarity. And, and that's, you know, you, you have to sit and think a lot. You have to, so to have a voice. Yes. I mean, it's, it, it is important to have a voice, but it, 
it's important to turn everything off and get alone and just think things through. Yep. So if I have yep. a point, I want to think about the weakest parts of the point. What some, where are the weaknesses? What are the uh, ways to confront those weaknesses? Make your argument better. Make your thoughts better. Make them more precise. Make them more concise. Uh, make them better, more memorable. Uh, change them. And don't be afraid to change your opinion. Mm. You know, if you think of something tomorrow that you hadn't thought of today or new evidence comes along that proves your previous position, your hypothesis incorrect, then change your position. Yeah. Uh, I was recently reading a, a, a column by Jeff Bezos, and he was asked the question, how do you get it right so often? And he, and, and he said, look, when he's hiring people and he starts to try to figure out, you know, who can get it right? Who's not going to get it right? It's like the people who get it right more often are the ones who change their opinions the most. It is the most dogmatic people who are wrong more often. And, and, and I, you know, there's, there's such, uh, there's such weight to that. It's yeah. like, you know, you're always evolving, always looking. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, we, we could sit here guaranteed with tons of time or little time and tell stories about great tournaments, great players, uh, great memories, all the things that we lived. And to be fur frank with you, I, I actually uh, don't really care to do that. I want to know how you feel about certain things, some things that we haven't necessarily talked about. I'm going to ask you three questions, three kind of quick hitters, all tied to how you feel about things people could potentially say about you or to you, and I want to get your reaction. And they're all linked together. The first one is, what would you say to people who say this guy's full of it? I'd say the same thing to those people that I would, the people who say that I'm the best analyst uh, in all of sport, um, which, you know, people will say to me from time to time. Um, and, and while I, you know, I'm, I'm not belittling their compliment mm -hmm. or their criticism. I, I believe that you should be able to hear the harshest criticism and the fondest compliments and treat the two the same. Uh, it matters to me what my family thinks of me. It matters to me what the people who employ me think of me uh, and maybe my closest friends. But beyond that, I, I go into every show, whether it is, you know, a lesser event or the biggest event that we cover and I treat them the same. I study from sunup to sundown. I think about it all day long. I try to be fair. And when the camera comes on, I try to have fun. Mm. If yeah. people think I'm good at my job after that, or if they think I'm full of it after that, that's, that's fine. I mean, everybody's entitled to their opinion and uh, you know, someone can watch somebody put on a great show and think they're terrible and someone else can think they're great. It makes no difference to me what people think. So what would you say to people who say this guy is full of knowledge beyond anybody I've seen and he's a true encyclopedia. Maybe you just answered that. What would you say to them? Well, again, I, you know, I, I, I certainly respect other people's opinions. Uh, and there is an element of truth to most criticism. Uh, and so, you know, but if you believe the hype, it's not going to help you. And if you believe the criticism, for the most part, it's not going to help you. So I tried to be unaffected again. Uh, of course, you know, we all have a, 
a negative bias. You know, we, mm-hmm. we hear criticisms and those tend to stick with us more than compliments because people tend not to believe the compliments and they tend to believe the criticisms. It's just the way we're all hardwired, but you have to have, uh, you have to have your own ideas and your own thoughts and your own value system. And of course that's backed up by your closest friends and family, but you have to have those to hold you in good stead in a world that is subjective as TV is. You know, when I first got into TV, I was, I was taken aback by how insecure TV was Mm -hmm. because it's unlike golf or, you know, golf is purely objective. You shoot 65, nobody can tell you it was bad. You shoot 78, nobody can really tell you it's good. But TV, you finish a show and you feel like you did a great job. And plenty of people can tell you you did a terrible job. And, <laughs> and some might tell you you did a good job. It's a very subjective world. And I, 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 I sensed all the insecurity of TV, the TV world. And I thought, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to feel like that. And so I, you know, I came up with my own criteria for what constituted a good show, which is to work as hard as I can, be fair, and have fun. Yeah. yeah. And if I do that at the end of the show, I don't care if somebody tells me it sucked or somebody told me tells me it's Emmy worthy. Doesn't matter to me. Mm-hmm. So, full of it, full of knowledge. And then there would be some who would say, full of himself. What do you say to those people? Again, you know, I, um, you know, I, I think um, it's important to have humility. Uh, there are plenty of things that have happened to me in my life that, that give me reason to be humble. But you know, I, I think it is important to have an elephant, an element, an element of, uh, of humility. Um, but you know, it, it, it's also important to have confidence in what you're doing, you know, and, and confidence comes from hard work. By the time I get on TV and I'm making an argument, I've thought the argument through and I don't do research to back up my opinions. I do research to discover my opinions. So by the time I've, you know, by the time I am making an argument for something on the air, I'm pretty confident in that argument. And I love to debate. I love to have a nice back and forth between somebody who looks at an issue different than me, because when that happens, I learn. It forces you to make your argument better, lets you know, makes you aware of where your arguments are weak. And, you know, it sends you back to the drawing board in most cases. So I, I enjoy the back and forth. Um, but there's nothing wrong with having confidence. Mm-hmm. Confidence just comes from hard work. Yeah. Um, you know, a false sense of belief, that doesn't last very long. You know, I, I think people can see through that. You, you have to have uh, the substance to what you're, what you're talking about. 
Season two of Tracks to Success is brought to you by Presentation Partners. Presentation Partners is a unique team of award-winning executives helping you build a presentation others will be talking about. Presentation Partners teaches you the true art of storytelling. And if you haven't heard about their neuroscience of persuasion, you'll see how valuable it is to own it. Whether you're a company or an entrepreneur, Presentation Partners is the team you need behind you. For almost 15 years, they've helped clients raise millions in capital and countless dollars in sales simply by making top leaders successful presenters. The time is now to find your authentic voice and learn your authentic story. Presentation Partners, creating persuasive story presentations based on something other than just your good looks. We're talking with Brandel Chambly here on Tracks to Success. Good friend of mine, a guy I truly respect. I'll share my opinion of what I believe uh, in just a little bit about his talent and uh, what he does for the game of golf. Brandel, I would tell a story. Uh, I don't know if you remember this or not, but there was one time I was not scheduled to do uh, the 1230 show. You were, I was on the golf course. I got the phone call. Kelly Tillman was sick. They said, rush in here. I was going to do the seven. And I got there with 30 minutes to go before showtime, threw my suit on, jumped in the makeup chair. You walked in and said, well, Kenner, I don't think we're going to kill anybody with information today. And I said, nope, because I missed that meeting. I said, Brandon, what we are going to do is we're going to kill them with entertainment value. And you said, well, then let's go. And I always remember, and I tell this story to a lot of people, that was one of the most enjoyable half hours. I couldn't tell you what I said or what tournament we were doing, but I know I had fun in doing it. And I tell that story because I want to ask you, how much of what you do do you truly believe in the game of golf, which is such a storied game, right, is entertainment? Or do you worry, do you worry about not giving enough information and making it too much fun and laughs? Yeah, you know, look, entertainment, I think uh, the entertainment aspect of it, you need to be aware of it. I mean, people tune in to be entertained, informed mm -hmm. as well, mm -hmm. and entertained. And so the ideal show is informing them while entertaining them. Um, but if you set out to be funny, you're gonna, you're probably going <laughs> to flop. I You'll mean, fail. You, being funny is one of the hardest things to do. You know, I watch various comedians on TV and uh, they're the best in the world. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll turn to, you know, my wife Bailey and we're watching and I'm like, you know, the very best comedians are funny a little more than half the time, mm -hmm. laugh out loud, funny about half the time. And the other half of the time, you know, whatever, uh, you know, comedy's hard. Oh yeah. And that's not, that's not, that's not anybody's forte as far as I know in TV. Chemistry's uh, hard. Chemistry's hard. Yeah. You know, and when you have chemistry with somebody you're working with, it, 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 it comes through. But the important part is, I, is if you have fun, I, I remind myself this when I get up in front of people. Um, I'll, get, I'll segue here real quickly. I was asked to give a talk once in front of uh, a woman's club. Mm -hmm. um, uh -huh. for the travelers the travelers had a, a has a woman's day um 800 leaders um uh, female leaders uh women leaders in the community and from all over the country came together 800 people and they asked me if i would come up there and do a q a for this group and i said yeah absolutely love to 
And so I get there to do a Q&A and you know this, right? If you're doing a Q&A, you don't need to prepare. You right, know, sure. Asking you questions about you. I think I know me pretty cold. It's different than if you're asked to come up and give a, a one hour speech. So anyway, I get there early, like 15 minutes early for the, for the Q&A. And I'm listening to the lady up on stage who's tr tremendous, doing a great job. And two or three ladies come over to me and they say, you know, nice of you to come, really nice of you. Cannot wait to hear your speech. And, and when she said it to me, I said, a speech? And she said, yeah, you're, you're giving a speech where we've got you scheduled for 45 minutes. Um, you're following this lady here and your Oprah Winfrey is after you. And uh, I mean, incredible group of people, incredible leaders. <laughs> and so when she said that, now there's two or three people in front of me and there are two, three people beside me and they all want to talk, right? They want to have fun. And it just hit me that I have to come up with a 45 minute speech, not a Q&A. And I thought, and these are leaders, business, corporate leaders. And I said, you know, what am I going to tell them? What am I going to do? And so as I'm trying to also engage with all these people around me, I thought, well, I'm going to talk about the dynamics of TV and process and tell a few stories, the, the worst and most embarrassing things that have happened to me on the air. But what I reminded myself was, and this gets back to your point, was to have fun. Mm -hmm. Because if you have fun, your audience is going to have fun. So I remind myself, and it's very easy to get caught up in all of the, the minutiae before you go on the air because people are throwing papers at you. Here's shot, shot, <laughs> uh, shot, uh, shot, shot sheets, sheets yep. and, and info. And here's the rundown. And we're doing this. And we got that graphic and you got to go to that. You have to take a deep breath and go, people are watching me in their underwear in their living room. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not cutting a brain tumor out of something. <laughs> yeah. you know? yep. This is meant to be fun. Yeah. And you have to just, you know, right before that camera comes on, I always remind myself, have fun. Yeah. If you have fun, they have fun. Generally speaking, your audience is going to have fun. Well, I've had a lot of people come up to me over the time and say, you know what? I'm addicted to the Golf Channel. I fell asleep to you many times. And I said, I don't really know how to take that because I, I was trying that. not to put right. you to sleep. We tried to have some fun. Hey, yeah. let, let me ask you this, Brandon. A lot of people <clears throat> in whatever they do try to climb the ladder and, and achieve success in their life. Something goes wrong. And they get derailed and they never recover from that. Now, to be fair, you've been embroiled in a few controversies and a few rabbit holes, as you say, uh, in, in your career on television. Um, how have you I mean, th these have been pretty, pretty strong and people come at you pretty hard and you've had to deflect. How have you stayed the course, Randall? How have you stayed the course when everybody's aiming at you and they are being critical? Well, again, it goes back to, you know, preparing, you know, when, if, if you've done the proper preparation, then by and large, the things that you're saying are going to be defendable for the most part, you know, and if they come from the right place, you have to constantly remind yourself, you know, where's this coming from? Is this coming from the right place, from a place of, you know, analysis and you know i there's a reason why i've never really wanted to get to know the tour players i don't want to like or dislike them because if you do you know you're gonna have to say nice things about 
players you don't like, you're going to have to say critical things of players you do like. And I'd rather not feel one way or another about them. Uh, so, you know, yes, you know, I've been doing TV now for 17, 18 years on air a lot. And occasionally I've said a few things that I'd, I would have liked to have tackled myself before I said them. And a few things get out of your mouth where they weren't quite worded the right way and they can get you in a lot of trouble. So I try to be very, very careful about what I say. Uh, and, you know, again, there are a few times I've said things where, you know, I wished I would have phrased them in a different way or hadn't said them at all. Uh, but by and large, if you, you know, and again, I, I try to be very careful about what I say and how I say things and say them exactly how I mean them. And if somebody is critical, then I would have liked to I'd like to think that I could defend my comments because mm -hmm. I've, I've thought of all of the criticisms of those comments. But again, I'm not critical of you know, players per se. I'm, I'm critical of something in their games or complimentary of something in their games. And that said, Brandel, have you ever thought this just isn't worth it? I mean, th this honestly, uh, I don't need this, okay? <laughs> I've done this for X number of years. Um, I don't need to do this anymore. Bye-bye, exit, set, left. Now, I saw Chris Collinsworth asked a similar, similar question. He said he came off a game where he thought he had a fabulous show. And he got on Twitter and everybody was like, you stink. You're the worst analyst of all time. You, you know, you got this wrong, that wrong, this wrong. He was like, you know, don't get on Twitter, get a dog. If you're a sports <laughs> analyst, you know? And so the criticism comes with the job. You know, you could, you could be mother Teresa saying the most soothing, um, you know, give the most soothing message to humanity and she'd get skewered on Twitter for some reason. Uh, that's just the way it is. Everybody has a voice. Um, you know, there's going to be plenty of people that find criticism with you, no matter what you do. Um, and I remember the first year I was in TV talking to Tariko, and he said, you know, if you do the job right, half the people are going to hate you and half the people are going to love you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you, it's the same thing with a, a comedian. You know, if a comedian gets up and everybody in the room laughs, he didn't really do his job, you know. I mean, it may be great for him. He may think get a lot of laughs, but you know, a comedian, at least the way I view it, it it's just to get to that edge, right? And you say things that make half the room laugh and half the room go, "Oh, I can't believe he said that." And um, you know, I think that's at least in my view, that would be the highest aim of a comedian, and it's certainly the highest aim of an analyst is to make people think. And some are going to agree with you. And some are going to disagree with you. And the better you defend your argument, the more people will agree with you and the more people will hate your argument. Yeah, yeah. Johnny Miller sat in the booth for a long time at NBC, a long time. And uh, when he relinquished that seat, uh, my, my gut tells me that you would have loved to have had that opportunity to come your way. Whether you did or you didn't, I will tell you this, because people asked me what I thought about what might happen. And I always said, you know something? I'm not Brandel's coach. Uh, I believe I'm his friend. I know I'm his former colleague. And I would tell you that he has a greater platform and a bigger opportunity sitting where he sits to be able to talk for longer about more in-depth things than somebody who's sitting there giving quick analysis on one golf shot after the next. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. And, you know, over the course of, you know, 
my career in TV, yeah, I've had the I, I've had the idea of replacing Johnny posed to me two or three times at least by the people you know who you know were in some position to make that play. And I and I always said the same to them, same thing to them. I was like, if you want me to do that job, I'd be happy to do it. Um, it's a completely different animal than what I do now. Um, calling live golf is a completely different approach to what I do. You know, I, I work in a very expansive world and that is, you know, a lot of quick hits. And I think the reason Johnny was so good at it, a couple of reasons. One, he devoted the time to it. Uh, and Johnny's smart and he's unafraid and he hates platitudes. That's why Johnny was so good at that job. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I try to call a couple of live tournaments every year. One, because I, I enjoy the challenge of it and the change to what I normally do. But I do it also to get out and see the players, talk to some of the coaches, the managers, and to get a little bit of that flavor just to sort of keep myself up to date with what is going on that contributes to golfer success. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I also did that by playing some last year and we'll continue to play a bit on the PGA tour champions, but, um, um, but no, you're right. I have a much broader stage. I get to expound on topics, every single topic in the world of golf that has some weight to it. I get to take a stab at Yep. not, you wouldn't get to do that in live golf. Nope. nope. Um, so I, I quite enjoy, um, where I get to set, who I get to work with. If I come in one day and I say, look, I want to do a five minute breakdown on, you know, Bryson DeChambeau replanting his left heel more towards the target in transition, which is an incredibly nuanced move that it contributes to his, his power. I can do it. Um, couldn't do that in live golf. No, um, no, you'd have to, you know, you could do it, but you'd have to do it in, 22 seconds. In addition to hosting this podcast, Craig leads the CAN Advisory Group, focused on elevating communication for companies and individuals. Company consulting, empowering team and individual workshops, mind-altering webinars, and Craig's inspiring keynotes for your conference or company meeting. They're all on the menu of services. CAN Advisory helps companies clarify their message, helps professionals build and showcase their brand, and helps everyone present their best selves. So if you're the leader of a team or company looking to give your employees a game-changing one-day experience or an individual who wants to become a speaker and presenter that gets other people talking, visit canadvisory.com. And when you do connect, make sure to mention the Tracks to Success podcast to receive a special discount on any of the CAN Advisory services. That's canadvisory.com. Now back to the interview. All right, you're a speech communication major. A couple of things I want to focus on uh, that I get to talk about a lot more than I ever did before. That's keys to effective communication, knowing what your audience is looking for, thinking about the outcome that you're looking for, having a real message, making people remember what they're supposed to remember. Those are all things that most people don't think about. And I saw a recent study where it was talking about the number one thing, and there were 11 skills 
listed the number one skill that companies are looking for post-pandemic or in today's current landscape. And number one was communication skills, effective communication. Now, you communicate on TV. My segue here is you're also an author times two, two books that I know of. What made you do that? And is that part of your communication and your message legacy? Why did you do it? Why did I write the books? Uh, well, I wrote the first book, uh, The Anatomy of Greatness, uh, Commonalities of the Greatest Swings of All Time, because I wanted to read it and it wasn't out there. Uh, I wanted to know what the greatest players of all time, it, it's easy to say, you know, you can swing your swing. Uh, and, you know, everybody does it differently. But that's, that's, I mean, there's, there's some truth to that, but they also have some commonalities. And I wanted to read the book and it wasn't out there. So I decided to write it, um, which was a fabulous two, three year experience. The second book I, I've just finished is the, again, it's the anatomy of greatness, commonalities of the greatest putters of all time. And again, I, I enjoy the study of that. Uh, I'll go back and say, I also wrote, uh, anatomy of greatness, commonalities of the greatest swings of all time, because instruction was going down the wrong path. And I wanted to swing instruction back, or my goal was to swing instruction back uh, in favor of the player, in favor of the athlete. It was going down a, a very theoretical path and it had gotten off the rails. And I thought it was impoverishing men and women alike in professional golf and amateur golf for that matter. And as a result, golf instruction has changed. You know, you see more players lifting their lead heel, more players turning deep into their right hip or their trail hip. It's one of the reasons why Phil Mickelson gained length mm -hmm. uh, last year. It's one of the reasons why Bryson DeChambeau has gone away from the golf swing he had when he came on tour to the one that is allowing him to hit the ball nine miles now. Golf, golf it's the reason Matt Wolf is, you know, hits the ball so far. So, you know, from that perspective, I feel like I, I achieved my goal. Um, so writing books, you know, there's that adage in, in uh, academic world, uh, publish or perish. But I, I believe publishing books, you know, it, one, it requires you to spend two, three years in a deep, deep dive. <laughs> and it, it gives you a greater insight into what I'm talking about. So. Yeah. You know, I, I'm going to continue to try to write a book a year. I'm working on my finishing up the second book. I've got to do illustrations and pictures and so forth. And but I'm I'm already about halfway through my third book, and Impressive. I'll continue to write. I'll continue to write as much as possible. I've uh, I've gone in head first, and I know the process. But it it does challenge you, and it does put your life in perspective as you start to put it into words. Uh, a lot of you comes out within your writings. I'm going to challenge you, Brandel Chambly, uh, because I'm going to be a producer now and uh, I'm going to say, all right, there's only so much time left in this little chat we're going to have. So I'm going to say a minute on each of these real quick yeah. ones and then a couple of big ones before we go. Okay. In a minute or less, define your brand. Honesty, truth, uh, well-researched, uh, critical when he needs to be complimentary when he needs to be. I think that pretty much sums it up. Anything missing on your resume that you haven't done? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in politics. Uh, I spend whatever free time I have left studying politics. Uh, it's not to say I'd like to go into politics, but the study of politics, uh, analyzing uh, the political paradigms that have taken place in this country and how they contribute to the evolution of this country has uh, a great hold on me and I, I enjoy studying it. So, uh, you know, it wouldn't bother me dipping my toe into that world. Golf channels, golf channels changing addresses. All right. A lot of people have lost their jobs. A lot of people have, uh, you know, seen their careers kind of go in a completely different direction. Your take on the importance of anybody, no matter what they do, to be able to have a second act or a pivot in them. My dad said to me when I was growing up that there is there is no better experience than being your own boss. Uh, professional golf was was that I was my own boss. Uh, TV is the team team game to end all team games. I mean, you know, I don't I don't even know how many bosses I have. I don't even know a lot. Um, but it is um, I think it's 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 very important to always be striving to improve yourself and you know you you know as well as i do that you know you you meet a great number of people you know you, you can learn so much from everybody you meet i mean everybody knows something uh, that you've you know undiscovered by you so you know you you keep active you keep a positive attitude you keep learning and you keep interested and curious other opportunities uh, will come your way the thing you're most proud of, your greatest accomplishment? Well, there's personal and professional, and they're, they're different, you know. Um, you know, personally, um, you know, just being a father is, uh, is you know, there's no experience like it. It, it, it never ends, you know. I, I remember once calling my dad, my mom, asked them some advice, and, and, uh, you know, my mom and dad were like, you know, you, it just never, you never stop being a parent. And that's true. My kids are 23, 18, 17, but, uh, but being present in their lives is, uh, is, is something that gives me great joy. Uh, professionally, it's just uh, burning, you know, to get up and, and, and find something I didn't know and share it with my audience. I'm going to say this right now. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with you. I know you have a lot of things to say about a lot of topics, and they're not all golf-related. You pour yourself into your work. There isn't a word that comes out of your mouth or an opinion that you haven't said or have said that you haven't thought about before it was actually said. That's a credit to you. My last question is this, and you can go wherever you want to. Brandel, is there anything the audience doesn't know or have heard from you that you feel like they need to know about you? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think people are pretty good at intuiting what someone's like, you know, I watch, I watch TV, you know, um, I watch talk shows, uh, I think I can get a pretty good sense of what the people are like that 
that are speaking. Um, you know, what's important to me is, uh, is, is to dive into your work, give it all you got. Uh, people that tune in deserve that. But beyond that, it's having, uh, humility, you know, um, a lot of people, uh, are struggling in the world and they deserve our respect and they deserve our empathy. And, um, you know, spend a lot of time working, but the rest of the time you need to, you know, try to make as many people's lives around you as, as, as beneficial or as positive as possible so that they can go on and spiral that positively positivity upwards. I've worked with a lot of people in this, uh, in this business and I count you among the, the best I've ever worked with and uh, a very good friend and somebody I respect immensely. Anybody that loves this game ought to, uh, ought to be a big fan of you, Brandel. I appreciate you spending time and I can't wait to see you soon. Craig, thank you so much for having me on. And, uh, I've been watching with, uh, with some happy eyes as you've, uh, carved out a new path in your career. So congratulations to you. And thanks for the call. Thanks for having me on. It means a lot to me. Appreciate it. Brandel Chambly has been my colleague and my friend for many years. As I said, I'm proud to have worked with him and glad that I've seen the work he puts in before we went to work to deliver a show. And that leads me to my one last thing. No matter what you do for a living, Just like in television, there is a red light that goes on, which means go. That's your time to present. That's your go time. That's your time to make an impact. That's your time to deliver words that will be remembered and your time to deliver them in a way that leaves people feeling something. Nobody who's reached a level of success just wings it. Nobody just turns it on and makes a real impact they're looking for. Those who reach the top of any profession or industry understand the importance of preparation and thinking about what they want their audience to see, hear, and feel before it's time to present. My advice is simple. If you want to be an influencer, never shortchange the process that comes before performance. Put in the time well before it's your time. Do that, and your tracks to success come a whole lot easier. Hey, Do me a favor, rate this podcast for me. Give it a review before you share it with someone you know. And if you have a guest you'd like me to talk to, email me direct, info at canadvisory.com. Until next time, I'm Craig Can. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Tracks to Success, brought to you by Presentation Partners, visual storytellers passionate about connecting presenters with their audience. Don't forget to subscribe to the show for more great interviews and thoughts on reaching your highest personal and professional summit. You can follow Craig on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at Craig Can. And for exclusive Tracks to Success content and news about our upcoming guests, you can find Tracks to Success on Twitter It's at Tracks to Success.